And you can see here that our author wants to continue to describe this important doctrine of faith. And he's using chapter 11, the discussion of the hall of faith, or how faith has worked itself out and been central in the life of God's people throughout the Old Testament. He's using that as a sort of a kind of foundation now to begin to talk about the doctrine of faith more theologically and more practically for his readers and therefore for us. Okay? Now, the first thing he does here in chapter 12, verse 1, is he's beginning to describe for us how the doctrine of faith connects to the doctrine of the atonement. How does faith connect to Christ's work as our superior high priest? And here's what he says. Verse 1. Listen to these specific words that he's saying here. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Who are the witnesses he's talking about? Not a rhetorical question. You can answer. Who are the witnesses? Chapter 11. That's right. The witnesses he's talking about here are all of these Old Testament figures that he keeps bringing up. In fact, this is, this is really clear if you look at the Greek text. You would think that it'd be pretty obvious, chapter 12, verse 1, when he's talking about the witnesses, that he's talking about all the people in chapter 11. Um, one of the things that's kind of weird, though, at least as I've studied, is that chapter 12, verse 1, is oftentimes used as a proof text for praying to saints. I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but you know, Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox will use the passage as a, a proof text for for praying to saints, of all things. And they'll say, well, we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. And so here you have all the saints and Christians, you know, bygone of ages past, and they're all watching now, and, and you can pray to them. Well, not exactly sure that that's what this passage is talking about, because if you look at the Greek text, you go back to chapter 11. Notice what it says here in verse 1, verse 2 of chapter 11. Just look at what it says. For by it... That is, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. You see that word commendation there? This is in my ESV. You might have something different in your particular translation. But that word commendation in the Greek text is the word witness. And throughout this passage in chapter 11, it repeatedly uses this word commendation or commend. Or in the Greek text, witness. Verse 5, for example, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him up, or because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. There again, there's that word, witness. And so throughout the whole chapter, you see this word commended being used. The Greek word is witness, literally. So when we come to chapter 12, if you were reading this as an early Greek Christian, you would see very clearly the author of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 1, is talking, when he says witnesses, he's talking about all of these saints in chapter 11. Abel, Isaac, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, all of these people he's going through. The author is not saying that we have a bunch of witnesses who are watching everything we're doing right now. That has nothing to do with his point. What he's talking about is, is he's saying, essentially, in this sort of theological courtroom, I, the author of Hebrews, have gathered together all of these people from the Old Testament, and they stand 
as examples for you. They stand as people who are bearing witness to the truth that faith is not something that is, that is part of just the New Testament. But faith has always been the central saving feature of God's people throughout all of time. Right? So you can see here, here he's drawing in that historical foundation. Faith has always been important. Now let me tell you why faith has always been important. That's his point here. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Foundation. Now here's his point. Verse 1. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now there's a couple of things to note in that very rich statement. First of all, notice that as our author refers to the person of Jesus, he refers to him with two different Designations, I guess. I don't know what to call them. Two different titles. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, he calls Jesus the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And those two concepts are powerful concepts. They're not something to just read over very quickly. Because sometimes when we think about the doctrine of faith as it connects to Jesus, when we think about that, what most Christians are thinking about is... Our only conception of how faith and Jesus relate is that Jesus is the object of our faith. And so when we talk about Jesus being the object of our faith, we're saying we need to believe in Jesus. He's the one that we're believing. He's the one that we're trusting. He's the object that we're directing our trust towards. And that's absolutely true. Jesus is absolutely the object of our faith. We can read that all over the scriptures. Jesus is the one we're putting our trust in. Jesus is the one receiving the trust, right? He's the object of our faith. But the thing is, the relationship between Jesus and our faith is more than one of him being the object. Here, the author of Hebrews is elaborating and he's saying, no, Jesus isn't just the object of our faith. He is actually the founder and the perfecter. And these two concepts are huge. Firstly, the, the concept of Jesus being the founder of our faith. Now, the, the Greek word hiding under this term, founder, is used a whole lot in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, this word for founder shows up very frequently. And almost every time it shows up, it's usually describing the head of one of the tribes of Israel. Or the kind of, the, the genealogical head. And you remember, in the Old Testament, there are lots of genealogies. And you know what a genealogy is? They're, they're those long passages that you come to sometimes when you're reading through in your devotions or something. And you get to the point where it says, these are the generations of Adam. So-and-so had this child and lived this long. And so-and-so had this child and lived this long. And then this guy bore this child and lived this long. It's some of those chapters where sometimes when you're reading the Bible, you're tempted to skip them. Right? Because they just seem really boring. Well, that's only because we're not ancient Jews. If we were ancient Jews, those genealogies would be so, so important. They value tracing family lineage. And the reason that they cared about that was because the Messiah was going to come. 
through those lines. They had to trace the lines because the Messiah had to come through those lines. So they cared a lot. They were watching for those things. And you can go back to the Abrahamic covenant, for example. God promises Abraham, through your seed, through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. There he's talking about Jesus. Jesus is going to come through your physical descendants. And so the founder, this word being used here, the founder of the tribes of Israel is huge because he is the one through whom all of the children are going to come. If you're a founder of the tribe of Israel, then you're the one who's going to be producing all of the children who are going to come forth and multiply and fill the earth. You can see, for the tribes of Israel, being a founder was really important. Here, the author of Hebrews is pulling on that typology. He's pulling on that shadow. He's pulling on that concept. And he's saying Jesus is the founder not of a tribe of Israel. He is the founder, not of a physical descendants. Jesus is the founder of a spiritual descendants. Jesus is the founder of our faith. Jesus is the one through whom all of these spiritual children we call sons of God come forth. You can see the parallel there. And the biblical authors do this a lot. It's not just the author of Hebrews in this one section. The biblical authors see that in the Old Testament, the physical descendants of Israel were a type or a foreshadow of the spiritual descendants of Abraham, or what we call believers, believers in the Messiah. These concepts overlap, they picture each other. And the author of Hebrews is using that same thing when he calls Jesus the founder of our faith. That's the Old Testament connection there. Jesus is the one through whom the spiritual children come forth. This is precisely why in John chapter 3, when Jesus is talking with Nicodemus, he says to Nicodemus, you must be what? Yeah, you must be reborn. You must be born again. Now, why is Jesus using this terminology of being of a spiritual birth, of being spiritually reborn? Is he just making something up there? No, that he's going back to the Old Testament prophets. The Old Testament prophets talked about a kind of spiritual rebirth. Because Jesus is the founder. He is the genealogical head of a spiritual lineage, of a spiritual family that is multiplying and increasing throughout the earth. That's why Jesus here is called the founder of our faith. That's the Old Testament connection. But you see, there's also a theological implication here, too, if Jesus is the founder of our faith. Because a lot of Christians today seem to think that they themselves are the founders of their own faith. That they can muster up the new birth within themselves. But here, when our author is saying that Jesus is the founder of faith, he's saying that Jesus, through the power of the Spirit, is the one who produces faith in the hearts of his people. This is why Paul, in Ephesians 2, calls faith a gift from God, not a result of works, lest any man can boast. In other words, faith is not something that we do, because if it were something that we do, then we'd be saved by a work. Faith is something Jesus does as the founder of our faith. He is the originator of it. Just as the founder of a tribe of Israel is the physical cause for how children come forth, 
So Jesus, as the founder of our faith, is the cause from which spiritual children come forth. Now Jesus is doing all these things through the Holy Spirit, because he and the Father send the Spirit to actually do the application process here. The Spirit is the one doing this. But the author of Hebrews can credit Jesus with it because Jesus sends the Spirit. Right? So that's Jesus as the founder of our faith. Notice there how the theology, the Old Testament, the New Testament themes, they're all overlapping. You see how rich the scripture is. It's so full of this kind of stuff. Jesus is the founder. But he's not just the founder. He is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. You see that second qualification there is the perfecter. See, Jesus doesn't just come, give faith, generate children, and then say, okay, now you're on your own. I raised you to life, but now you've got to keep yourself alive. Now, when Jesus comes, and when he gives faith through his spirit, he doesn't just get you started and then kind of, you know, watch to see what you do next. Or just give you a little bit of grace to help you out if you want it. No, what Jesus does is he perfects the faith. This word here, the Greek word behind perfecter of the faith, describes bringing an action to an absolute completion. Bringing an action to an absolute completion. That is the work of Christ through the Spirit when faith is present in the hearts of his people. He doesn't just start faith. He continues it. He brings it to an absolute completion. You know what this text is describing here is the perseverance of the saints. Not that we, in our own strength, have this ability to persevere through life. But really, the perseverance of the saints is the preservation of the saints by God, by Christ, by the Holy Spirit. They preserve us in the faith. This is why Jesus in John chapter 10 says, I know my sheep, and not one of them will perish. He doesn't say, I know my sheep, and you know, hopefully most of them don't perish. I don't really know because I'm still waiting to see what happens. He doesn't say, most of my sheep will make it. He says, I know my sheep, and not a single one will perish. Why? Because he is not just the founder of, Not just the author, not just the origin of our faith, but he is the perfecter. He brings it to a sure, steadfast completion. We get no credit for that. He gets all the credit. All right, so that's Jesus. Now you can see here that as our author's talking about the doctrine of faith in chapter 11, showing us how it works historically, you can see now in chapter 12, he's moving theologically and he's saying, look, see how important faith is. And see that faith is not something that you do. Faith is not what you're doing. Faith is something God is doing in you. That's why it's a gift. That's why Jesus is the founder. That's why Jesus is the perfecter. But he's got more to say about faith. Because he's not just interested in telling us about the sovereignty of God in our faith. But he also wants to connect the doctrine of faith to the atonement. Because here's how he continues. Verse 2. Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now again, that is another 
massive piece of the puzzle here. Another thoroughly rich part of the text. Notice how it says here that Jesus had what joy set before him. And he endured the cross for that joy that was set before him. Now, I've often been, you know, as I've read this passage in, in previous years or, or you know, I, I've thought, what's the joy that's being talked about here? What does it mean that for the joy set before him, he suffered the cross? Who set the joy before him? Who, who is setting this goal forward for Jesus? Because right? it's almost described here as if Jesus has something that, that he's pursuing when he comes to the cross. He endured the cross. Why? For the joy that somebody set before him. Who set this joy before him and what is this joy? What is this, this joyous goal that Jesus is pursuing? His Father's will. And as you study the scriptures... As you look at things from a bird's eye view, and then as you zero in on various details, as I continue to do that over the years, I, I came to begin to see what this joy is that's being described. The joy being described here is also described in numerous other places in Scripture. One example is Luke twenty-two twenty-nine. And you don't need to turn there. I'll read it for you. Here's what Jesus says. He's talking with his disciples shortly after the institution of the Lord's Supper. And Jesus, in Luke twenty two twenty nine, here's what he says. He says, and speaking to his disciples, he says, And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. Now, if you take a look at the Greek text of that verse, the word assign is the verbal form of the word for covenant. So Jesus is literally saying in the Greek, and I covenant to you a kingdom just as my father covenanted to me a kingdom. And so you see what Jesus is talking about there. He's saying that there was some kind of covenant between God and himself. A covenant between the members of the Trinity. Well, when is this talked? Where is this in Scripture? Where do we find a covenant between the members of the Trinity? That seems awfully strange to talk about. A covenant between God the Father and the Son? Well, Jesus is saying explicitly that's the case. This verb, I covenant to you a kingdom, that's always used 100% of the time for covenants. So Jesus is undoubtedly talking about a covenant between himself and the Father. When did this happen? I don't remember reading about that. Well, it's because I wasn't reading closely enough. Lo and behold, you read Psalm chapter 2. In fact, I'm going to turn there really quickly because Psalm chapter 2 talks about this very covenant. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Listen to what it says. I will tell of the decree. Now that word decree is a synonym for the word covenant in the Old Testament. In fact, if you look at the ancient translations, they all translate it, I will tell of the covenant. So, verse 7 of Psalm chapter 2. I will tell of the covenant. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. 
And I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. There we have the same covenant being described. God says here, you are my son, speaking to the son of God. You are my son, today I have begotten you, ask of me and I will give you a kingdom. What does Jesus say to his disciples? I covenant to you a kingdom, just as the Father covenanted to me a kingdom. Jesus is talking about this covenant. And theologians call this the covenant of redemption. Now, don't get that confused with the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace goes from Genesis 3, 15, all the way to the end of Revelation. That's the historical unfolding of God's covenant with his people covenant between God and the elect. It's a historical covenant. But the covenant of redemption is the foundation for the covenant of grace. And the covenant of redemption is not a historical covenant made between God and his people. But the covenant of redemption is an eternal covenant made between the members of the Trinity. And in that covenant described here in Psalm 2, Luke 22, and a whole lot of other places in Scripture, we have God saying to the Son, I will give you a kingdom. Namely, I will give you the elect. I will give you a chosen race, a holy priesthood. And the Son, as his condition in that covenant, needs to come and accomplish redemption for them, because they're sinners. And so the Son comes and accomplishes redemption. And in that covenant also, the Holy Spirit, his condition, is to be sent by the Father and the Son to go out and to apply redemption to God's people. And so you can see, this is an eternal covenant between the members of the Trinity. And we don't have time to go into all the details here. But you can see, this is precisely why when Jesus comes to earth, and in the gospel accounts, he's always talking about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven. What is this kingdom he's talking about? It's the kingdom God has given to him in the covenant. The kingdom promised in Psalm 2. The kingdom that Jesus is talking about in Luke 22. And in a whole lot of other places. This is why Jesus in the Gospel of John is always saying, The Father sent me to do this. I do nothing that the Father hasn't sent me to do. Why is he talking like he's under contract? Because he's under covenant. He's doing what he's supposed to do in light of the covenant of redemption. And this kingdom that God the Father promised to the Son, this people, this chosen race, this holy priesthood given to the Son of God is one that brings him, what in the book of Hebrews chapter 12? It's a kingdom that brings him joy. It's a kingdom that brings him joy. When Jesus thinks about coming and fulfilling the condition of the covenant of redemption, namely earning salvation for that kingdom of elect sinners, when Jesus thinks about that, he doesn't dread it. Oh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he certainly dread the suffering that he was going to undergo. He sweat drops of blood. But Jesus did not dread the actual work itself. Because God the Father put joy before God the Son. He set joy before Him so that when the Son underwent the suffering, He did it because He knew how much joy it would bring Him to receive that kingdom from the Father. Now you may say, 
that's all interesting theology that I'm sort of trying to follow, but what does that actually mean? Why, why should I care about that? Well, don't you think that is profoundly moving to know that when Jesus came to suffer for you, that he was doing it out of joy. That he did it out of love. That in the covenant of redemption, God in love predestined the elect. In the covenant of redemption, the Son, in love and joy, went about his task of earning your redemption. That in love, the Holy Spirit, in the covenant of redemption, applies that salvation to you. When Jesus came and died, he did it out of joy. And he did it out of joy because he loves you. When Jesus founded faith in you, he did it out of joy and love. When Jesus perfects faith in you, he does it out of love and joy. This is not a cold, contractual act. It is a loving covenant. Praise God for that. And in our our response to Christ's joy, we can have joy this morning as we praise and worship and sing to him and hear his word this morning. So let's pray and ask God to bless us when we do that. Lord God, we thank you for these great truths that we find in your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would use those truths to motivate us so that we would love you more and have greater joy as we come before you in worship and hear your word today. So we pray all these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.